There's something very common, something very human, about the phenomenon of buyer's remorse. And this is a time of year when we often think about or experience buyer's remorse. At least in a few weeks after Christmas, we will probably see the lines at customer service desks begin to stretch longer and longer. Or perhaps less so these years as we shift more to online shopping. And so the return lines have shifted to post offices and UPS stores. Earlier this year, for the first time, I made an Amazon return and was instructed not to box up my item or tape it closed or print out a label, but just to take it straight to the UPS store and the staff there would do it for me. And so businesses are learning that making their return policies more and more lenient is a good idea because more satisfied and more confident customers are more likely to buy in the first place. So buyer's remorse is all part of the business plan. And companies know well just how common it is for us to think we want something, and then once we have it, start to change our mind. In our gospel reading for today, it seems as if John the Baptist may perhaps be experiencing a bit of buyer's remorse. Last week in the gospel reading, we heard John predicting that someone more important than himself was coming, a successor, the Messiah. And between that gospel passage and the one we heard today, Jesus has in fact come to be baptized by John and as baptism, the heavens have opened up and a dove, has, the Holy Spirit as a dove has descended on Jesus. And so it seems pretty clear that Jesus is the one John has been looking for. But since then, some time has gone by. John has been arrested. He's languishing in prison and his execution is on the horizon. His ministry is over. And it seems perhaps he has begun to wonder if this successor is really everything he had hoped. And from his prison cell, he sends his messengers to ask, are you really the one who is to come? Or should we be placing our bets on somebody else? Like a politician in primary season, John wonders if he has made the wrong endorsement. <laughs> and we might wonder what the problem is. Where is this second guessing coming from? As Jesus says, he is going around healing the sick, giving eyesight to the blind, raising the dead, and even proclaiming good news to the poor. I like the way that he names that last as if it were more amazing than raising the dead. So what more does John want? And the passage doesn't tell us directly. But I wonder if the answer has to do with what John's expectations were in the first place about what the Messiah was supposed to do when he came. Because in the gospel passage from last week, we heard John warning people, who told you to flee from the wrath that is coming? And John said that when the Messiah came, he would essentially fry sinners in, quote, an unquenchable fire. We can say that John's motivational technique is centered around a heavy dose of negative reinforcement. John is a prophet of threat. 
Whereas among all the good and exciting things that Jesus is doing, healing the lepers and proclaiming good news and so forth, we would have to admit that there seems to be a conspicuous lack of frying. And I wonder if John expected a Messiah with more teeth. Someone who would open up a can of heavenly rectitude and set the Roman occupiers in their proper place. But instead of overthrowing Caesar or setting fire to the unrighteous, this person that John put all his hopes on is content to go around a little corner of Galilee doing some very nice healings and proclaiming some very nice good news to the poor. Is that all there is? It's interesting that Jesus' response to this question is both to praise John and to put him in his proper place. He tells the crowd that John is both more important than anyone else ever born and less important than the least important person in God's kingdom. And again, Jesus doesn't spell out exactly what he means. But I imagine that it might have to do with the fact that John the Baptist, above all others who has ever been born, is the ultimate preacher of God's commands. John proclaims the kind of righteousness, the kind of holiness of life that God expects. There's a stark and terrifying truth about God that we as human beings have in some way to come to terms with, which is that God is holy. God is more holy than you and I will ever be or imagine. And God is righteous. More righteous than you and I will ever be or imagine. And out of that holiness and out of that righteousness, God has expectations for the way that we are to treat one another. And the way we are to treat God's creation. And God is saddened and angered when we don't. Many of us might, most of us might often prefer a cozier God. A God who pats us on the head and winks at our failings. And John tears all that gauzy sentimentality away and says, no. Change your lives. Live the way God wants you to live. Or else. And yet it's that or else, that perhaps keeps John the Baptist from being the first prophet of the full reign of God. Because for John, it means the unquenchable fire, but not for Jesus. And so Jesus comes as John's successor, and in Jesus, we see again God's holiness and God's righteousness but we see it paired with God's unfathomable mercy. It's not that Jesus winks at sin. He calls out injustice and calls people to repentance. But his response to sin is not to torture his enemies into submission or blast them into smithereens. He does something different. He comes to win us over. He comes to win us through love. Now this Jesus 
is not always the Jesus that we might prefer. It's easy to want to remake Jesus into the kind of image that John might have been looking for, as a kind of violent protector, aggressor who takes our side. A few years ago, the bestseller lists were topped by what was essentially a Christian fan fiction series about the end of the world. Maybe you remember it, it was called the Left Behind series. And it is a highly readable and gripping set of essentially airplane novels. And it climaxes in the last book with a scene in which Jesus returns, the second coming. And he comes, not in tenderness, but in wrath, to mow down the armies of the Antichrist. Forgive me for briefly quoting. Tens of thousands of foot soldiers dropped their weapons fell to their knees and writhed as they were invisibly sliced asunder. Their innards gushed to the desert floor, their blood pooling and rising in the unforgiving brightness of the glory of Christ. It was as if Antichrist's army had become the sacrificial beasts for the Lord's slaughter. Now, depending on your taste for violent fiction, this may be enjoyable or less enjoyable reading. But as theology, I can only call it Christ as Rambo. <laughs> and with respect to my more conservative Christian siblings, I have to say that this Christ as Rambo image, I think, misses the point, the point of who Jesus is. It misses the whole character, the whole personality that we have seen on glorious display through four Gospels and the rest of the New Testament. It's as if the character of Jesus that we see in the Gospels, the one who forgives his enemies from the cross, was just a mask that he's planning to take off in the end. When he quits offering second chances and comes out with guns blazing. And I think that that kind of theology ends up making Jesus just another tyrant like any other, just another Caesar, just another Herod, or another of the innumerable dictators and autocrats of today, only with superpowers. And if Jesus is like that, then you better get on his side before time runs out, or else. I don't know if that was what John was expecting. But thank God, that's not the Messiah who showed up. The Messiah who showed up is Jesus. Today is the third Sunday of Advent, a day that is sometimes called Gaudete Sunday, or Rejoice Sunday. And if Advent tells us anything, it's that the same Jesus who is coming again is the same Jesus that we met the first time. And that that is reason to rejoice. All the same righteousness, all the same holiness, all the same high demand and expectation about how we are to live, coupled with the same mercy, the same tenderness, the same overwhelming fire, not a fire of destruction, but a fire of love. This is the one that chose to be born not in a palace, but in a stable, to parents who were not important enough to get a place at the end. It's the one who chose to ride into Jerusalem, not in a chariot to be crowned, but on a donkey to be executed. 
It's the one who chose when he was killed, not to destroy those who killed him, but to destroy death itself. Blessed is anyone, says Jesus, who takes no offense at me. May we never be offended by a God who is more, more merciful than we are. And at his coming, may we not cower, but rejoice.